Morning, Keystone. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. We're going to be in a couple verses there this morning in each chapter uh, as we start into this second week uh, on a series on fear that we started last week. Uh, in, in many ways, this series is uh, kind of rooted in two commands we see throughout the Bible that on the surface maybe seem to be contradictory. One being, do not fear, or fear not, or do not be afraid. And the other being, fear God, fear God, fear God. And in many ways, the goal of this series is to discover how the right fear, fearing God, ultimately helps us in fighting or overcoming our other fears in this, in this world and in this life. Ed Welch has a, a famous quote, you might hear this multiple times throughout this series, where he says, if you have ever walked among giant redwoods, you will never be overwhelmed by the size of a dogwood tree. Or you've been, if you've been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you have been in the presence of the Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. And so part, part of our goal in this series is to spend time in, in the presence of the Almighty God so that every other fear that might control us starts to lose power. And last week, we kind of looked at what's behind our fears? What's at the root of our fears in this life? And and how do they enslave us and control us at time? What effect do they have on us? And then also, the the right response to our fears to turn to God and fear God. But maybe that just left a question in your mind. If it didn't, maybe it should have left a question in your mind saying, well, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean for us to, to fear God? And the goal this morning is to really look at that question to better understand what does it mean for us to fear God. And in some ways, the, the, the big idea is simply this. Fear of God is the right response to who God is. Fear of God is the right response to who God is. But, but when we come to think about fearing God, there there are at least two ways that I can think of where we might go wrong. Maybe there's more that you can think of, but at least two in my mind where we might go wrong. One is that we wouldn't fear God at all. And that, that would be foolish, as I think we'll, we'll probably see this morning. But, but the other is that we would fear God and that we would fear him in such a way where we actually end up running from him or relating to him in the wrong way. And so we, we have a fear that has a harmful impact on our lives in the end. Maybe I can illustrate this just with an imaginary scenario for a moment. Imagine with me that that you are with your family visiting Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, and you're there for several days, and you're taking in all the park has to offer. And so you've seen uh, Old Faithful as it gushed into the air, and and you've hiked to the top of Mount Washburn and, and looked out over the panorama of Yellowstone to see how beautiful it is. And and, and you've seen both the upper and lower falls of Yellowstone River. And and now on your last day there, you you are on a hike in in the wilderness area of Yellowstone. And, And in the middle of that hike, in the midst of trees and some brush far away from all civilization, 
all of a sudden you see a grizzly bear standing 50 feet away from you, looking right at you. What do you do in that moment? There are actually two ways to respond that would be foolish. One is to think that it's no big deal to see a grizzly bear in the wilderness, and I will just continue on with my hike as I thought I was going to. Probably no one would do that, but that would be foolish. But the other is to fear the grizzly bear, and in fear, immediately turn and run as fast as you can from it. And in that sense, make it all the more likely that the grizzly bear will actually chase after you. When it comes to God, it would be foolish for us not to fear him. Again, as I think we'll see as we look at Exodus 19 and 20 this morning. And yet it would be just as foolish for us to fear him in such a way where we end up running from him or trying to avoid him. In the story we're going to look at this morning, we find the Israelites in the wilderness. Not not in the wilderness of Yellowstone, but, but in the wilderness, desert wilderness of the Arabian Peninsula. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt where God performed the 10 plagues and then he brought them through the Red Sea and now he's brought them out to Mount Sinai in the wilderness as he prepares them to go into the promised land that he's promised to take them into. And it's in the wilderness at Mount Sinai where where they meet not a grizzly bear, but they meet their God as he descends on Mount Sinai to to reveal himself, to speak through Moses, to give them the law and instructions for the tabernacle. And and as we look at the story and hopefully seek to put ourselves there, we discover, first of all, why it's foolish for us not to fear God. But we might also see how a wrong fear of God can actually be harmful and and then might get a glimpse into how the right fear of God is meant to impact our lives. Or if we put that into question form for us this morning, we might ask three questions. Why should we fear God? What is the wrong way to fear God? And what is the right way to fear God? And so we'll read in Exodus 19, starting in verse 9, but let me pray for us before we do. God, we're dependent on you and your spirit this morning. We want to hear you speak. We want to meet with you. We believe just as we sung that you are here with us. And we want to be changed by coming into your presence and hearing your word. And so I pray that that's what you would do for us this morning by your grace. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 19, 9 through 12, and and then we'll jump down to a couple other places. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Jumping down to to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We're going to jump over to chapter 20, verse 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near in the thick darkness where God was. In this passage, we just read of God descending on Mount Sinai to reveal himself to his people and speak through Moses to them. And this story gives us a picture of why it would be foolish for us not to fear God. This story, in many ways, I think is a visible testimony to the truth of a verse like Proverbs 19.10 that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the flip side of that is people who don't fear God would would be foolish in some way. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or, Or we might put it this way, to know God is to fear God. To know God is to fear God. The story tells us in verse 16 that all the people in the camp trembled as they looked at Mount Sinai. And you and I would have done the exact same thing if we stood at that mountain that morning. Like our eyes would have gotten big, our mouths would have fallen open, our knees would have given out beneath us, and our arms would have started to shake uncontrollably. And so in answering the question, why should we fear God? I want to seek to have us put ourselves at this scene as much as we can and also try to feel the type of fear we would have had if we were standing there or feel the type of emotions and how they would have felt if we were standing there as well. And we see that it's a fear that ultimately recognizes how great and transcendent and different God is than us. And so we might just say, first of all, as we, as we look at the scene, we should fear God because he is big and, and we are small. Or another way to, to put that, but I don't know if it catches it quite as much as to say that he's the creator and we are his creatures. That this whole scene is meant to impress us with God's bigness. It takes place at, at a mountain, Mount Sinai. Here, here's a picture of maybe what that looked like from one angle uh, that, that, that I looked at. But just, just imagine yourself standing at the bottom of that mountain, looking, looking up at it. And we might ask, well, why, why does this take place at a mountain? It could have taken place on a plain, a flat surface. It could have taken place in an oasis in the desert. It could have taken place along a river. So why at a mountain? Because mountains have a way of putting us in our place. The vastness, the bigness, the majesty of mountains appropriately make us feel small. Maybe you've experienced, I guess you've probably experienced this in your life, that you've seen some 
incredible, majestic, big sight in creation. And in that moment, you felt just how small you are in comparison. And there was a sense of awe and wonder at it. And at that moment, you've tasted a small sample of what we're meant to feel in the presence of God. Because notice, this is an important thing the story is trying to tell us, that that God has to come down to the mountain. The story is going out of the way to emphasize. God comes down to the mountain. It tells us in verse 11, verse 18, and verse 20, God descended, God came down, God came down. That, That the most majestic and big mountains are so puny in comparison to God that he has to stoop down to them like you and I would stoop down to an anthill. And so if mountains can make us feel small and leave us in awe, how how much more should the God who's made them who has to stoop down just to get to their level? We, We can also see that we should fear God because he is holy and we are sinful. In in coming down to the mountain and having people consecrate themselves, wash themselves up, put on clean clothes, and then telling them, you got to stand back from the mountain. You can't come near it. There's got to be a barrier so that you don't die if you touch the mountain. God, God is displaying his holiness, that he is other, separate, massively different than us. To say God is holy to, is to say that he is of a different nature than us, but morally perfect, and in some sense, a stranger to us. I, I love how Michael Horton says it. He says, the fear of God is a form of xenophobia, a fear of the stranger, or in this case, the one who is utterly strange and all together different. I think it's hard to capture the type of feeling we should have in the presence of like a holy God. And and maybe one of the best ways or the better ways that I've seen it displayed is is in a movie called Arrival. The, The movie Arrival tells about aliens coming down to earth to make contact with humans. And then you're like, Kyle, that's weird. You're gonna compare God to aliens? Well, I think it's actually fascinating that in a a culture that seeks to remove a transcendent God, our longing for transcendence still breaks through. And at times it breaks through in our fascination with aliens and other beings. That we we still sense there's got to be something more out there. And and in this movie, we we see the main character for the first time coming in contact or coming to meet these aliens. And she's in this hazmat suit and, and walks toward this big glass wall. If you can picture it with me and there's smoke and fog on the other side. And she stands at a, at a distance from this glass wall as ominous music plays in the background and gets louder and louder. And you see two dark figures far off start to approach and become clearer and clearer and clearer until they're right up against the wall. And the scene ends with her speechless, breathless, and shaking. And we think, if, if meeting aliens would cause us to tremble in fear, which it would, how much more should meeting or being in the presence of a God who is altogether different than us? Especially when we recognize that, that, that we are sinners and, and what is holy should ultimately consume us. And then thirdly, 
We might say that we should fear God because he is powerful and we are weak. The, the whole scene shows us God's power. Thunder, lightning, a thick cloud of smoke, God descending in fire, the mountain shaking, and the sound of a eardrum-shattering trumpet blast. Just imagine for a second being in the middle of the biggest thunderstorm you've ever seen, standing right next to an erupting volcano while an earthquake is happening under your feet. And, and, and maybe we get a glimpse of what it felt like to stand at that mountain that day as God descended. God, God in very visible ways is displaying just how powerful he is. And if you and I were standing at the foot of the mountain, we would have felt completely weak and utterly unable to control all that was happening on that mountain, let alone the God who was behind it all. There's a, a documentary on Netflix that came out in the past year that, that describes a volcano that erupted in New Zealand uh, in 2019, I think it was, as tourists were visiting this volcano. It, it was one of the only places in the, the U.S., or not in the U.S., sorry, in the world, that, that you could go and see an active volcano firsthand, up close. And in the documentary, one person tries to describe what it was like to see this volcano and approach it. And he says, you knew there was something beautiful and terrible, and you wanted to see it. But our tour guides just kept saying, do not go near the edge of the crater. Or, or as the volcano erupts, one person describes seeing the eruption from his boat, and I have a, a picture of it. Maybe that's a, a glimpse of what the Israelites saw at Mount Sinai that day. And he said, I'm watching it go up and it's beautiful. The, the white is pure white. The black is dark. It's, it's kind of just an awesome moment. And within seconds, what was beautiful went eerily sinister. Do you hear what, do you hear what they're saying? Like they're, they're trying to capture in words what it's like to stand before something that is so powerful that you have no control over and that you know in an instant could destroy you if it wanted to. I think if the sight of an active erupting volcano could cause us to shake with fear, how much more the God who that's simply the outskirts of his power. To know God is to fear God. Or we might put it in a flip way and say this, a God who we don't fear is simply a God of our own making. It is not the God who is transcendent, who is big, who is holy, and who is powerful as the, God, as the Bible describes him. It's a God who we shrink down to our size and make in our image so that we don't have to, to fear him. Michael Horton again puts it, maybe very bluntly to our ears. God is not our buddy, an indulgent grandfather, a life coach, or a golf partner. He is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And the other thing we can say here too is that if we don't fear God, we will fear something else in his place. Whatever else in our eyes is big and other and powerful is what we'll end up fearing instead. And so, so maybe that's, that's mother nature and, and, and we fear what the natural world could possibly do to us. Or, or maybe it's the, the government that's big and powerful, and we fear what the, the government could do to us. 
Or maybe it's just disease and illness and cancer and that's big and other and we fear what that could do to us. Or maybe it's just other people and they're, they're big in our eyes and they're other and what they could do to us. Or, or it could be any number of things. We, we need to see just how transcendent and big and holy and powerful God is so that we learn to fear him instead of fearing other things. But... And this is a really, really, really important but. If our understanding of God is limited to his transcendence, we end up with a deficient view of God that will actually lead to, lead to a diseased fear of God. If God is only big and holy and powerful in our minds and not anything else, we, we end up with a deficient knowledge of God that will lead to a diseased fear of God. Just like someone who has a vitamin C deficiency might be prone to get sick easily. So if our view of God is limited to his transcendence, we will end up with a diseased fear of him that will actually be harmful to us. Notice what we read in chapter 20, verse 18 through 20. You can look back there if you want. It tells us the people are afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said, Moses, don't let God speak to us lest we die. And what does Moses say in response? Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So, so, so in other words, there's this fear of God Maybe we say rooted only in his greatness, power, holiness that, that, that would simply leave us afraid of God and that that's not ultimately the fear that God wants us to have because that fear will actually cause us to run from God or, or avoid God or maybe try to control God. It, it, it's a fear that we can see. Maybe you, you can think of spots in the Bible where you see this fear. There are different spots where you can see it come up. You can see it in Genesis 3 where Adam sins, and then what does he do? He runs from God. Rather than coming to God, as God calls him to show grace to him. It's a fear that we can see in Mark chapter five, where Jesus shows up in this Gentile town, and he heals a man who has hundreds of demons, probably. It's an incredible miracle. And the people of the town respond in this way. They see the man clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And then Mark five seventeen tells us, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, right? Get out of here, Jesus. We're terrified of you. There have been different names given to this fear throughout history. And Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, which I would recommend is a really good book, calls this a sinful fear. And it's tough because he doesn't necessarily mean that this fear is all wrong, but rather it's a fear that flows from our sin, it isn't necessarily wrong because there's a sense in which it's right for unbelievers to be terrified of God and his judgment. But, but it's incomplete or deficient because it fails to understand the love of God and his mercy and his goodness and so seeks to avoid him instead. A, a diseased fear can cause us to avoid God. This is part of why I, I believe Paul talks about in Romans 1 that though everyone knows God in some sense, the world reveals him, our moral conscience reveals him, other things, that people suppress that knowledge and deny his 
existence. It's interesting, Christopher Hitchens, excuse me, who was a famous atheist, uh, was asked one time about the possibility of God's existence, possibility of God existing. And he responded and said, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. If there was a permanent round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment where you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. There's a very real sense in which sinful, self-centered human beings like us don't want a transcendent, holy, powerful God because he interrupts our way of living. He messes with us and we're ultimately accountable to him and we don't like that. But, but do you notice what's missing completely of Hitchens' concept of God? Any aspect of his love and mercy and goodness to his people. A disease fear can also cause us to live as slaves. This is why some people have referred to this type of fear as a, a slavish fear, a fear that would make us slaves. That, that God becomes in our mind maybe a distant master who doesn't really care about us and doesn't really care about our lives. He just cares about how hard we work for him. This is the soil that legalism and religion empty of the gospel ultimately grow from. Where where I obey God because I fear that he might punish me if I don't. Or I obey him because I think he'll only love me and bless me if I'm trying really, really hard to obey him. And so in that case, our our obedience actually becomes a way of us trying to control God and even keep him at a distance. Just as we might put up a, a fence around a grizzly bear to keep ourselves safe from it. So we try to build up this fence of our good works to keep us safe from God's anger and convince him that he should bless us. And again, this fear is rooted in a deficient view of God that fails to see just how loving and merciful and good he is to us. It's a fear that that sees God as a transcendent judge, but fails to see him as a imminent close father. But Romans 8.15 tells us that those who have trusted Christ did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This this fear is not what God wants us to have, a fear that would cause us to run away from him or avoid him or try to control him. He he wants us to have a fear that's rooted in a full understanding of who he is, which leads to the third point, that a true understanding of God will lead to a trembling joy in God. Let's go back to Mount Sinai. Let's ask for a moment. What is God doing when he comes to meet his people on Mount Sinai? What's he doing? Yes, he's coming to reveal his greatness, his transcendent holiness and power. But he's also drawing near to his people, coming close to them. He's a God who's not only transcendent other than us, but who's also, we say, imminent, near to us. And then we might ask, well, what is part of God's purpose in revealing himself in the way he does at Mount Sinai? 
What's his purpose in, in showing up in such a powerful way? Well, he, he tells us in verse 9 of chapter 19, which we read to start out. You can look back there. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people, or so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. God revealing his majesty is meant to lead his people to put their trust in his mediator. In this case, Moses, and in our case, the true and better mediator, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. See, it's when we see how big and holy and powerful God is that we then see our need for a mediator between us and God. But, but we can go farther this, than this, and we can ask, well, what is God seeking to accomplish at Mount Sinai as he speaks through Moses? What's he trying to reveal to his people, show them as he speaks through Moses? He's going to reveal his love for his people over and over telling them, I will be your God and you will be my people. In fact, do you know what the very first words are that God speaks at Mount Sinai? We didn't read them. They were earlier in chapter 19. It was chapter 19, verse 4 where God says to the people through Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you see, God's coming down to Mount Sinai to reaffirm his love for his people, to bind himself in a covenant to them of love, and to give them good commands, like the 10 commandments that we skipped over here, that are good for them because he loves them. We should fear God not only because he's big, but also because he loves us. That, that the God who is so big that he has to stoop down to mountains would freely choose to love people who are so small should leave us in stunned awe. And, and not only that, but he's also revealing through Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and the, the sacrificial system through which the people could find forgiveness of sins. This God who is so holy and perfect that he says, don't even touch the mountain I'm on or you'll die is the same God who makes a way for people's sins to be forgiven so he can dwell with us and we can be near to him. This is part of why a verse like Psalm 134 says, but with you, speaking of God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We, We fear God not only because he's holy, but also because he forgives our sins. And then we also see God coming down to promise his people that he's going to do good to them. He's going to take them into the promised land, though they don't deserve it at all. That the same God who carried them on eagle's wings out of Egypt is going to carry them on eagle's wings into this land where God is going to bless them over and over and over again. That that, that we fear God not only because he's powerful, but also because he's good. See, it's when we step back and consider the whole of who God is as he reveals himself at Mount Sinai, that we find not only is God great, but he's also so, so good. And what we hear whispered at Mount Sinai is what we hear yelled from a loudspeaker through Jesus at the cross. It's at the cross where the God who descends in fire and reveals himself through smoke, thunder, lightning, and earthquake, now descends and reveals himself as a man who dies in our place out of love for us. What what kind of God is that? That the God at Mount Sinai is the same God who dies on the cross. 
It's at the cross where the God who is so holy that we can even touch the mountain he descended on or we die is the God who now not only allows humans to touch him, but to put him to death so that we might find forgiveness. What, what kind of God is that? It's at the cross where the God whose power can make the mountain shake is also shown to be the God whose power can make the graves open and who promises to do us good forever as a result of the resurrection. What, what kind of God is that? See, if the, the Israelites wanted to fear God rightly, that, then they needed to believe in and listen to the mediator God provided for them, Moses. And if we want to fear God rightly, then we need to believe in and listen to the mediator God has provided for us, Jesus. We, we need to see God not only descending on Mount Sinai, but also see him dying on a hill at Golgotha. And as we do, we fear God not only because he is great, but also because he's so good. Here's how John Bunyan has said that. He says, oh, that a great God should be a good God. A good God to an unworthy, to an undeserving, and to a people that continually do what they can to provoke the eyes of his glory. That should make us tremble. I want to give two illustrations of this type of fear because I think it can be hard to grasp. What, what does that feel like? Or why should we fear? So I want to give two illustrations of this type of fear that can maybe make, help us maybe sense it a little bit better and understand what type of impact it should have on us. The, the first one comes from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you probably anticipated this was coming at some point in this series. And if you've not read The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you should. Like, I find as I read them as an adult, they're so much better even than when I was a kid because C.S. Lewis has this ability to capture our imagination and make us feel truths that we know really deeply in our hearts. And, and he does that with the fear of God when he describes the four children and their response to, first of all, hearing about Aslan and then encountering Aslan for the first time. They're first of all told about Aslan by a, a beaver they meet, and they find out that he's a great lion. And one of the girls, Susan, responds and says, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And the beaver replies and says, that you will, dearie. For some reason, he has a Scottish accent in my mind. I'm not really sure why the beaver does. I won't uh, make you suffer that. It says, that, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And later when the children see Aslan for the first time, Lewis describes in this way. He says, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children have ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. 
Lewis is trying to capture the type of trembling joy we have when we're in the presence of someone who is both so great and so good. And it's the same type of trembling joy we should have when we behold God in Jesus and see both how great he is and how good he is. And and then our fear of God ends up being a love for God. Because what's interesting is you see that the children love Aslan and they long to please him because they know how great and how good he is. And, And when we know how great and how good God is and have a right fear of him, it will lead us to want to love him and obey him. Not because we're afraid of him crushing us, but because we know just how incredibly good he is. And so we'll want to please him even when it means facing our other fears in this life as a result of that. The second illustration that captures a different side of this right fear of God comes from John Piper. I'm not being very original this morning. I'm just ripping off other people. Uh, but, But John Piper describes this when he says, imagine yourself climbing to the top of some majestic mountain. So back to the mountain again. You're climbing to it. It's the biggest, beautiful mountain you've seen. And you get to the top. And just as you get to the top, the biggest storm you've ever seen breaks on you. There's wind, there's snow, there's sleet, there's ice, and it's threatening to blow you straight off the mountain to your death. And in that moment, you you turn and you find a cleft in the rock that you can get inside of. And, And it's from that refuge that then you look back out and all the elements that, that seemed seconds, seconds ago, just a terror to you, now all of a sudden seem majestic and beautiful from that refuge that you can take them in from. See, he's trying to capture this idea that it's in Christ we find a refuge that covers us from God's wrath for our sin. And when we take shelter in Christ, we're able to look at God and all that he is and tremble with joy because we see how great he is and yet we know in the midst of all his greatness, he's for us. Piper says this, God's greatness is greater than the universe of stars and his power is behind the unendurable cold of Arctic storms. Yet he cups his hand around us and says, take refuge in my love and let the terrors of my power become awesome fireworks of your happy night sky. In this way, the right fear of God will lead us to a sense of awe and wonder and joy and worship of him. And, and as that happens, then all our lesser fears start to shrink, like we said last week, in comparison to him. Here, here, here's the one takeaway I would leave for this morning. Fight your lesser fears by soaking in the greatness and goodness of God. And let me just suggest even two ways you can do that, and I can do that this week. To see and know God's goodness in the world that he's created. Creation is singing this endless song of how great God is and how good God is. And yet we're so often so busy that we don't stop to just listen. And when we take in the greatness of God and the goodness of God that might be revealed in the world he's made, our other fears might start to shrink in comparison. And then the second, it taste and see God's greatness and goodness in the word he's spoken to us. God is on a mission in the Bible to over and over and over and over again say, look at how great I am and look at how good I am. We're just often too busy to stop and listen. 
But, but if we do, we might get a greater glimpse of God's greatness and his goodness. A- and when we do, then we might start to feel the greater full force of when God says, do not fear, for I'm with you. Because we know the God who is with us is the same God who descended in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai. And, and after all, if you've ever walked among giant redwoods, you will never be overwhelmed by the size of a dogwood tree. Let's pray. God, you are far greater than we can ever comprehend. And we confess we're, we're dependent on you to open our eyes to see more of how big you are, how powerful you are, and how holy you are. And so we ask that, that you would do that. But God, you're also far better than we could ever comprehend. And we're just as dependent on you to open our eyes to see your love, your mercy, and your goodness. And so God, we pray that you would do that as well. That you'd help us to to see, to know, and to rejoice in how great you are and how good you are. And that that might help us in the midst of all the other fears we encounter in this life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.